My name is Keith Beavers. I am firmly a 1989 era. Of course, Red was incredible. Fearless was <laughs> amazing, but style. Oh my God, the song Style is the best song, guys. What's going on, wine lovers from the Fine Pair Podcasting Network? This is the Wine 101 Podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and I am the tastings director of the Vine Pair. Okay, today we're going to talk about a milestone, a moment in champagne history that defines it. And it's really confusing, and it's not all true, but let's get into it anyway. So here we are. One of the most famous moments in time for champagne. In a very confusing moment at that. This is the moment in champagne history where we have to talk about Dom Perignon. Yes, the monk who is said to have said, Come quickly, I'm drinking the stars! But in French... Was he blind? All these things about this guy. We'll get into all that. But we have to first establish this ninth century champagne moment as well when in the last episode we talked about how that is the time when people started kind of identifying villages and the quality of wine coming out of these villages. These This kind of still pinkish wine that was becoming more and more elegant, more delicate, more defined, more focused, more popular. And the abbeys were mostly in control of all of this. Yes, there were some wealthy nobles that were doing it as well, but primarily the monks were making it happen because they had nothing else to do. Actually, they had a lot to do, which we'll, we'll, we'll see in a second. But just to step back here for a minute, because Dom Perignon is this part of this, basically this episode and all that stuff. But we have to go back to 650 AD when a abbey called the Abbey of St. Peter at Haute-Villere, or Haute-Villere, H-A-U-T-V-I-L-L-E-R-S, if you want to try to pronounce it. The town of Haute-Villere is just north of the big, important town in the Champagne region called Epernay, which became sort of a trading hub for wine in Champagne. A bishop of Reims, see, I say Reims because it's R-E-I-M-S. My name is K-E-I-T-H, so Keith Reims is how I, that's how I justify it. I just can't say Reims all the time. I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, but a bishop of Reims apparently saw a dove land on a piece of earth in this area, and that's Apparently, the dove told him to build the abbey there. So that's how the abbey got there. But that's not important. What's important is in 841, when a priest who was working at the abbey stole the relics of St. Helena, who was the mother of Alexander the Great, and brought the relics of the body to the abbey. And in doing so... <laughs> Increased the revenue of the Abbey due to the large amount of tourists that would come to look at the dead body parts of the mother of Alexander the Great. Wow. They had to make some money. And they made that money. 
they made that pilgrimage money and they took that money and invested it into land under vine. See, this is 841-ish. This is the ninth century. So at the time, there was a fervor. Everyone was trying to plant land under vine because of the popularity of certain towns that were making the best of the best. I is the, the, the commune that was very popular among the royals at this point. So everybody else was trying to compete with it. Even the abbeys and ovulaire was one of them. Now, speaking of I, the commune, and royalty, we have to fast forward to the 17th century because this is the next moment in time that I was talking about in the beginning of the episode like where we, where we need to talk about because this is a moment, a pivotal moment in Champagne history. Because the thing is, we're not in sparkling land right now. We're still in still wine land, but we're in a place where the still wine is being perfected to the point that it's defining itself as a regional style. And in the early part of the 17th century, we see people like royalty start to get interested. So the royalty is like, look, if this is good, we're going to buy a bunch of it. And they get into something, they get really into something. So that was a big deal for a lot of the winemakers and abbeys in this area. Specifically, the court of Versailles started digging on the champagne style. Still wine. Still, still wine. It's also the century where in 1639, maybe 1638, not really sure, a boy by the name of Pierre Perignon is born in the Champagne region of France in January. I'm pretending he's a Capricorn. He was one of, I think, seven kids. But what's important is that well, this is like it's in the it was in the east of the of the province, so east of Epernay. The town is called Saint Menehould. Menehould. I can't pronounce it. But his father actually owned vineyards. So Pierre Perignon grew up with a background in agriculture. Very cool. But that's not what he got into. He went to Jesuit college. So he went. The way of the, he was on his way to being a monk already when he was in his teens. And when he was actually 18, he was assigned to his first abbey in a commune called Verdun. This is all in the Champagne region. Verdun is actually closer to Luxembourg. But in 1668, the second half of the 17th century, when all kinds of stuff were going on in this part of the world for wine, Dom Perignon is assigned the cellarer of the Abbey of St. Peter's in Ovillère, north of Epernay, one of the hubs in the heart of the Champagne region. And he would stay at that abbey until his death in 1715. But he ran that abbey. I mean, he ran it. And, you know, I say a lot about monks and how they didn't have a lot to do, but they really did. When you read about the Dom and what he did at this abbey, he was a busy guy. So... He took care of the cellars, he took care of the vineyards, but he also oversaw woodcutting and the sale of wood. I really don't understand what that means, but it's listed in the documents. The distribution of provisions, building maintenances, maintenances, <laughs> maintenance, and finances. He was basically the boss, even though he wasn't really the boss. The boss of an abbey is called an abbot. He wasn't even an abbot. He was the cellarer, but... He was very particular about things. And that comes through in the texts of his pupil because there are no surviving written notes by Dom Perignon himself. But he had a pupil who wrote very detailed notes about everything he learned from the Dom. His pupil, 
Frere Pierre, I'm sure I'm butchering that, Father Pierre, actually was his successor in 1724 and released all these this text of what he learned from his, his mentor. And the book that he produced was basically, I can't really pronounce it, but it's the traits of the culture of vines in Champagne. And this is where we get the real Dom Perignon. Because the thing about this guy is, you know, as you learn about history of wine throughout the world, the most important or the most famous wine regions always have somebody who wants to change the way things are done to help improve the quality of the wine in the face of friction. That happened in Piedmont, it happened in Bordeaux, and it happened here. And the figure that is sort of the example of this is Dom Perignon. There's a lot of myth around this guy because of the work that he did do to improve the quality of wine in the area that later on people would use as promotional materials to promote the region across the world. But what Dom Perignon did for Champagne was improve the quality of wine and viticulture, viticulture and viniculture. And some of the things that he came up with today are kind of thought, oh yeah, of course we do that. But back in the day, they were like, why? Why would you do that? And this happens a lot throughout the wine world. In this book, there's a quote that Dom was, quote, scrupulously concerned with details that to others appeared insignificant. And that he insisted on practices that other winemakers would consider, quote, impossible or even ridiculous. He was very particular about how to plant and prune vines. He also was very particular about how to care for the vines throughout the growing season. I mean, this is all kind of like, yeah, obviously, but back in the day, maybe that wasn't such a common idea. He also warned vine growers about filling up the baskets at harvest too full so as not to crush grapes underneath. I mean, yeah. And a real big one I find very kind of innovative innovative is he advocated for keeping the grapes as cool as possible by, by shielding from the sun on their journey to the press today. That's still a thing that people worry about. He also had thoughts and notes. Well, according to his pupil of how to make wine in warm growing years, how to make wine in cool growing years and a real big one here, how to clarify wine to achieve the most refined results. There's even a chapter called How to Blend Different Crews to Attain the Greatest Perfection in Wines. That's the name of the chapter, where his pupil talks about how using the character of different terroirs can help to achieve a better harmony and balance in wine. I mean, was he talking to the Burgundian monks? I don't know. I mean, it was a very fundamental knowledge of it. There's a quote in there, for example, wine from stony soils should be blended with wine from lighter, chalkier soils to avoid making a wine that is too heavy. Fundamental, but earth science, like what's up? So Dom Perignon's contribution to winemaking in Champagne is extremely important in the history of the Champagne winemaking region, but nowhere in the texts of his pupil, Father Pierre, Frere Pierre, is there any mention of sparkling wine? Now, if this guy was this meticulous and this sort of, I don't want to say intense, but like he had some ideas, you would think that if sparkling wine was part of it, it would be in that text and it is not. There is a, a legend that he went down to the southern part of France and saw sparkling wine being made there and then came up and said, now I know how to do it and perfected it. There's, no, there's nothing about that. So Dom Perignon is associated with 
Champagne House, Moet Chandon to this day, and there's actually a statue in the courtyard in Epernay of their, their Champagne House, which I've been to, and it's absolutely beautiful. But it's almost like Dom Perignon is like the patron saint, patron saint of wine in Epernay. That's kind of how it feels to me. Because there's all these myths about him that he said, I'm drinking the stars. There's no nowhere that says that, that he was blind. There's nowhere that he was not blind. He actually tasted blind. That was a misconception that he went down to Limoux and found sparkling wine in Southern France and copied it. All this is just kind of myth. And it all, kind of, it, well, it looks like it all started in 1821 when a letter was written to the deputy mayor of the commune of I by a cellarer of Ovillers to stress how important the Abbey was and the wines being made there because I was very popular at the time. So obviously this guy wanted that whatever winemakers there to also buy grapes from this Abbey. I think that's kind of what it was, but in this letter is where all the myth making begins in the letter. He says that Dom Perignon invented sparkling wine and champagne. And not only that, but the cork to stop the wine. This is absolutely untrue. Because from Father Pierre's text or book, it seems to me that the, the work of Dom Perignon was to make that pinkish hue perfect, meaning the character, the structure, the texture of the wines that are already being famous, being famous, being made famous in the Champagne region, these still pinkish wines. There is a text written by, they don't know really who it is. I think it's a guy named Jean Godinot, a clergyman from Reims, does mention in a text, Van Musso, or sparkling wine. This is in 1718, a couple years after Dom Perignon had died. In the text, there's a quote saying, quote, for more than 20 years, the French taste has been established for sparkling wine. So that means that there is a chance sparkling wine was being made in the second half of the 17th century during Dom Perignon's time, but he wasn't dealing with it. He wasn't playing with that. He was playing with making still wine perfect. And historian Francois Bonal, one of the biggest champions of champagne, he was a huge fan and a major promoter of the region and a big detailed historian of this place said, quote, we don't know of anyone writing before 1820 who claims that Dom Perignon was the inventor of sparkling champagne, end quote. So this is kind of a murky spot, isn't it, wine lovers? We have this myth-busting thing where the Dom was not really doing sparkling wine, but we do have documentation that there was an effervescence thing happening because, see, this area in France is very cold, has very harsh winters. And what would happen is that wine that we were, didn't have modern technology at that, at they, me, we, they didn't have modern technology at that point. So they would cellar still wine that still had yeast cells in it. Over the winter, the yeast went to sleep because it was too cold. Then the spring and summer came around, everything warmed up, the yeast would wake up, start doing its survival stuff, like eating sugar and turning it into carbon dioxide and alcohol. The carbon dioxide had nowhere, it would have nowhere to go. It would build up pressure in the bottles, and the bottles would burst. 
that's probably what was happening with that documentation. And what's very interesting about all this is there's really no documentation about that necessarily. But what we do know is that the English, and you can go back and listen to my, um, I have a, a, an episode on glassware, I think in season one or two, I can't remember. But the English started producing glass and the glass that they produced was very sturdy, much sturdier than the glass that was being used at the time in the Champagne region. So this is a little bit weird. But what happened was a lot of the wine, the, the British started buying wine from the Champagne region in the seven, late, later part of the 17th century. They had barrels of it over in England. And they, I think, would be the first to actually understand the bubbliness of wines from Champagne because of that phenomenon where they would take it in barrel, they would buy it in barrel, it would ship from there to England, and they would put these wines in their sturdy French, uh, sturdy English glass. And as the second fermentation accidentally happened with their climate, the, 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 glasses, the glass didn't break. So the result was an effervescent wine. And there's actually a poet named Andre Simon in 1664 who said in his poem, Hudibras, I don't know, H-U-D-I-B-R-A-S, Hudibras. But in this poem, he says, drink every letter of it in stum and make it brisk champagne become. Stum is partially fermented wine, and it seems like they were adding that to still wine to make the wines brisk and somewhat effervescence. And wine lovers, this is the first reference in literature of sparkling champagne wine. Yes, the 1718 text says that the, the people are getting a taste of it, but this is the first reference of it actually happening. And there's also evidence in England of people using molasses and sugar to add to the wine and to a, making the yeast do its thing again, knowing it was in, it was in there and intentionally making this effervescent wine from the wines of Champagne. Wild. This technique of making heavier glass eventually reached France in the seven, basically 1700, in the 18, early 18th century. And then a couple decades after that, the Champagne cork came around. And then in 1728, a royal decree comes down saying, you can now transport your wines in glass where before it was only permitted to in cask because of that explosion factor. So now champagne has stronger glass. Champagne has corks. Champagne has a trend that it's being, that it's witnessing in London of their wines becoming effervescence. Effervescent. They have wine, high acid wine in their land already that has been perfected by the work of Dom Perignon. And in 1729, a year after the edict came down that you could transfer this stuff, the first champagne company is established, Ruinart. And to this day, they still make champagne hundreds of years later. And what it originally was, this is very cool, is the sparkling part of that house was just for gifts. This happens a lot in the wine world where something new is produced and the winemaker doesn't make enough of it, so they give it to certain people. This still happens to this day. But eventually, this became a business. So now champagne has a new style. It's not a pinkish hue of still wine. 
It's a sparkling wine. And this moment right here is important for the history of champagne. And the next moment, wow, the widow. Man, things really get fun in champagne history. Let's talk this week about it. Vine Pair Keith is my Insta. Rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. It really helps get the word out there. And now for some totally awesome credits. Wine 101 was produced, recorded, and edited by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the Vine Pair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon for creating Vine Pair. And I mean, big shout out to Danielle Grinberg, the art director of Vine Pair, for creating the most awesome logo for this podcast. Also, Darby Seaside for the theme song. Listen to this. And I want to thank the entire Vine Pair staff for helping me learn something new every day. See you next week.